Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great mercy and uh, for your word. And we pray this morning that our eyes would be opened in the same way uh, that Lydia's eyes were opened. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Okay. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 16 where uh, Paul and uh, his uh, companion uh, Silas move uh, into uh, the Macedonia area. They're in Philippi which actually, as far as we know, uh, was the longest place that Paul uh, stayed, or at least that's the one he talked a lot about. And Philippi was an interesting place because as a Roman colony, it was the biggest and most happening place in, um, in its area. In fact, it was bigger than the capital of that district. Uh, and Paul and Silas show up there between 50 and 52 uh, A.D. Uh, I don't think people realize just how soon after the ministry of Jesus that Paul was having these missionary journeys. I mean, it's not hundreds of years later, but it's less than 20 years, uh, and uh, Christianity is making its way beyond uh, Israel's uh, shores. And so, of course, uh, Paul and Barnabas have separated. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, head into um, uh, Macedonia. So let's look at uh, Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 18. Kind of an exciting passage. So setting sail, and that also, if you've noticed this, you know, Paul talks about being shipwrecked. I think it actually calls a complex in Paul where he is incredibly detailed when he talks about his boat journeys. He tells you everything, that's, he even talks about the weather. So it's funny just to, to read him. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and then following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard from us was a woman named Lydia from the city of man, Theatira, sorry, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized with her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. The word of the Lord. Well, right now, so Paul and uh, we see a conversion. Uh, we see, sorry, we see a transition where all of a sudden uh, the word conversion comes up a lot in the book of Acts and elsewhere. Um, you know, for those who are early Christians, uh, especially those, most especially, nearly exclusively, those who were coming from a Jewish background, saw Christianity actually as a very natural step spiritually, that it wasn't uh, all that difficult transitioning from Judaism uh, to Christianity. Of course, that had its problems with the Judaizers, those who wanted to keep and enforce and maintain the dietary laws and circumcision and things like that. But 
for them, it was a little more natural. However, now you're getting into areas, the Greco-Roman world, uh, where you literally are converting. You're moving from one thing that really stands in direct opposition uh, to what you are preaching. Uh, but even so, we see that the seeds of the gospel, or at least God, have been working in the heart of Lydia when Paul goes to preach there in Philippi. Well, there's no doubt in Paul's missionary journeys and in the ministry of the church uh, that there's a heavy emphasis paid to uh, and also uh, a necessity held up of being converted. Now, it's not like we have a special emphasis week where we say, okay, this week we're going to get converted. You know, we're going to talk about conversion. We're going to convert you if you haven't been converted. You know, it's sort of like that Ray Stevens song, the Mississippi Squirrel Revival, and everyone got rebaptized whether they needed it or not. Uh, it's, it's not uh, set aside for revivals. It's not set aside for special services. But in fact, conversion uh, is uh, the name of the game, not just in Paul's missionary journeys, but to be a herald of the gospel, uh, to put forth the good news of who Jesus Christ is, uh, what he's done for us in his death and resurrection, uh, is, is a game changer. Uh, it's a life changer, uh, and it means conversion. Uh, Jesus said this very clearly in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dead of the night so as not to be seen, but at the same time wanted to know a little bit more about Jesus. <clears throat> And Nicodemus says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are from God because of the things that you do. And if God were not with you, you'd not be able to do these things. Uh, but not to be sidetracked by a Sunday school conversation, Jesus says what to him? You must be born again. You must be born again. Now, before we get too high and mighty and, and say, oh, well, Nicodemus, he doesn't know uh, what he's talking about. Poor Nicodemus in the dark. I mean, what would you say to Jesus if Jesus said, you must be born again. You'd probably say the same thing Nicodemus said. You are crazy with a K, right? This is crazy. What do you mean? I, I can't go back into my, my mother's womb and, and, and be born a second time. This is, this is crazy talk. And that's when Jesus said it again. I tell you the truth. that You're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Uh, Doug Webster used uh, the word repentance this morning. And the Greek word that is used in the New Testament to talk about repentance is metanoia. And it means, uh, basically, uh, not simply a change of mind, although it does mean that. It means, basically, like a brain transplant, that you're heading in one direction, and all of a sudden, that has been thwarted, and you've been turned around to head in another direction. So repentance is not just some decision that we make of, today is going to be a different day, but in fact, it's an act of God intervening in your life to give you a new heart and a new mind so that you're now able to see things that you weren't able to see before. We've talked about in the, that in the past, that when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, all of a sudden things that used to not bother you, bother you, right? Those little things that we might call picadillos are the things that now all of a sudden we're under conviction about. Or when we pass somebody by uh, on the street uh, that is hungry and in need, our heart is grieved and it, it moves for them. It moves us to a place of compassion and mercy. Why? Because the love of Christ compels us, as Paul would say elsewhere. And so it comes as a surprise to many who grew up in the mainline church that if you're a Christian, you have been born again. 
Now, I know that the whole language of born-again Christian has taken on some freight, uh, especially now that we're in an election year, uh, although that's kind of been done away with. But every once in a while you hear a pundit say, well, born-again Christians who vote. But what's the difference between a born-again Christian and a Christian? Well, politically speaking, they would say the born-again Christians are the people that are kind of out here. Or actually, that would be that way, out here. Uh, but, um, but in fact, what the Bible says is if you're a Christian, you have been born again. You have been born again. Now, you may be like me, and you think, well, let me think of a time in my life where I wasn't a Christian. I do believe that God can save you in the womb. We see that uh, to an extent. Remember when Mary goes to her cousin and she's been told by the angel Gabriel that she's going to have the Lord Jesus, and she goes to her cousin uh, who is pregnant with who? John the Baptist. And when Mary says, this is the message of the angels, what does John the Baptist do in his mother's womb? He leaps, right? He leaps for joy. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's possible. Uh, and, uh, but for most of us, you know, especially those, you know, I used to be the guy who was like, I wish I had a crazy testimony, right? I wish that I had a testimony that showed my life was really bad in this one, one period of time, but then Jesus intervened, and then the rest of my life has been filled with light and, and goodness. Like, you know, Andrew joined a motorcycle gang and used to punch kittens in the face, and he was just a mean guy, and all that kind of stuff. And then Jesus entered in, and uh, he still doesn't like cats, but he, you know, um, <laughs> didn't punch him in the face. So, uh, but you know what? But I'll tell you, the most effective testimony are the testimonies, frankly, like yours and mine who probably grew up in the church, who may even think, you know, I, I don't know that there was ever a time where I wasn't a Christian. And yet, uh, what I would put to you is that there was probably a moment in your life, and there ought to have been a moment in your life, where you had to appropriate the Christian faith for yourself. It had to become personal. It had to be yours. That's why oftentimes we deal with a lot of teenagers in high school and college who are struggling so much. Why? Because their faith is actually their parents' faith, right? And they've never appropriated it for themselves. They've not actually made it their own. They've not made that transition where Jesus is Lord of them, where He is their Savior. And so I wonder if there's not a moment in time, even if you did grow up in the church, where you actually did cry out to God and say, God, I know you're there. Uh, Jesus, you have been in my life, and I, if, I, if I die today, you're going to take me. Uh, and yet, um, I need to experience you personally. Uh, I need to know that you have saved me, that you've redeemed me, and that you've set uh, a new heart uh, within me. Because it doesn't come naturally. I mean, we've been to a slew of birthday parties recently. And, uh, I mean, if you you don't believe in original sin, go to a three-year-old birthday party. I mean, good grief. And I mean, it is just, it, it's really something. Uh, and so for me, uh, it, was, it was one of those, uh, I was in between the fifth and sixth grade where that happened for me. And what precipitated it uh, was a huge transition in the life of my family where we moved to a, a new town. My parents uh, divorce uh, had been final for years, but, but my mother was getting remarried. And, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, in the midst of all of that turmoil, um, 
really the only stable thing that I had to cling to was the Lord Jesus. And I held on as tight as I could. And it changed my life. And so I think probably for any of you that there has been a time in your life where you might say, you know, I've known the Lord my whole life, but that was the moment, right? That was the moment that I stepped out of the boat and I was walking on water and then I saw the waves, I saw the storm and I began to sink and I cried out, Lord, save me. And the Lord Jesus in His infinite grace and mercy reached down and grabbed my hand. Now, if you've never had that moment in your life, if you've never had a moment where you've actually asked the Lord Jesus to come into your life, uh, I can help you with that. Uh, I get paid to do that. And so uh, come see me and say, you know what, I'm just... Now, oftentimes when people... Let me just do this. Uh, When people come and see me about that, it means that they're definitely a Christian, right? If that's something that you're struggling over, it probably is indicative of the fact that you are a Christian, uh, but that you have some sort of mental barrier because you were like me who didn't have the testimony of before and after, although I do have that testimony. You know, I wasn't in a motorcycle gang, uh, but at the same time, I saw uh, what my life was like, even as a young boy, uh, with, with me behind the wheel. I mean, one of the uh, spiritually impactful moments of my life was when I was a little boy, and I'd come up from the basement, and my mother asked me, is the basement clean? I was four years old. I remember it vividly. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I went out the door and played outside and I started thinking about it. And I went back in and I said, Mama, if I lie, will I go to hell? And she said, yes. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what I grew up. I grew up thinking, you know, as long as I don't lie, as long as I don't, you know, cuss, spit or chew, you know, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be fine. And uh, realizing that, uh, I actually was lost, and next, this upcoming, next Sunday, I'm actually going to preach about what it means to be lost uh, and found, uh, but there was a point in my life where when the Holy Spirit came into my life, uh, although He had been there, but in a new and fresh way, I'm not talking about a second conversion, I'm just talking about there came a point in my life uh, where Jesus became very real uh, to me and not just my family's uh, Jesus. Now... God's arm is never too short to save uh, because we see God working in Lydia's life. Uh, When Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy uh, go to Philippi, they go to a place of prayer. And the first person to be converted in Philippi is who? A Gentile woman. You know, in order to form a synagogue, you had to have 10 believing Jewish men. But here we find in Philippi, that there isn't a synagogue on the out... I mean, think about how outcast this group was. It seems like it was mostly women who were a combined Jewish and Gentile. Lydia is what we'd call a God-fearer, somebody who believed in, uh, in the one true God and yet wasn't following any of the Old Testament uh, laws, uh, probably. Uh, but So it was a mixed bag. It was on the outskirts of the city. There weren't enough men to form a synagogue, and so they were really uh, on uh, their own. But what we do know about Lydia, and it's interesting that Luke focuses on her profession, is that she was a seller of purple goods, uh, which is indicative of the fact that she had wealth. It's very unusual in the Bible uh, to mention people by name unless there's a point. 
And uh, it may be that Lydia actually was a person of some significance already in Philippi, um, but uh, it's also of significance that she would become uh, a believer uh, in the Lord Jesus uh, there. Uh, she is either divorced or widowed, uh, because why? She's running her own business. Uh, if she were married, that, that, that would not uh, have happened. And so Paul goes and he begins to preach, and again, Paul is not the most eloquent of preachers. And the church in Ephesus, after Paul left, Apollos, who was a good man, but just didn't know very much about the Bible, and so his preaching got a little bit off track a little. Uh, but Apollos was a much better preacher than Paul, and Paul acknowledges that. And so Paul was not uh, the best preacher of his day, um, but what? But God. But God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, used Paul's preaching in order to bring Lydia and others to the Christian faith. I think one of the greatest problems that we have in the modern-day church is a complete and total lack of confidence that God is still able to do that. Uh, we don't believe that the gospel message is enough to bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus, to simply hold out Jesus is enough. And it can go both ways. We can either sort of downplay Jesus and uh, try to give you helpful hints for living um, and preach touching sermons, uh, or we can kind of load you down with a thousand ways to improve your life uh, via Jesus, um, whether it's how to manage your checkbook as a Christian uh, or uh, how to have your best life now, whatever the case may be. Uh, but what we find in Paul's ministry and any ministry in the life of the church, now it doesn't mean that we don't meet people where, we, where they are. It doesn't mean <clears throat> that, we don't, um, that we don't preach to a certain context. Uh, but at the same time, it's the gospel that makes the difference. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, when Billy Graham went over to England to preach the first of his crusades, he was mostly in Herringay in London, but uh, actually was asked to come out, and John Stott was a student at the time in, uh, in Oxford, and they arranged for him to come and do a preaching mission uh, in Oxford. And of all places, they had him preaching at the university church right there in the city, in the center of town, on the high street, the very same church where Thomas Cranmer was pulled out and led to the stake, um, and he preached his last sermon uh, before they executed him. And Billy Graham came over, and in the first night, he looked out, and he saw all these Oxford dons in their academic gowns and these Oxford students listening intently. You know what Billy Graham did? He preached a sermon that he thought Oxford people would want to hear. And that night, John Stott and others pulled Billy Graham aside and said, we didn't bring that person over. We brought Billy Graham over to preach the only way that he knows how. And so you need to preach the gospel in the same way that you would preach it to any other crowd. Uh, well, his sermon fell really flat that night, but the next night uh, something uh, amazing happened, that God actually began to work uh, in these hearts uh, that even Billy Graham thought were impenetrable uh, to the message of the gospel, simple faith in Jesus Christ. And do we expect that anymore in our preaching, in our witness, 
it's almost a surprise to us. It's a great miracle, but it's almost a surprise to us anytime someone becomes a Christian. Now, around here, it's sort of, you know, Christianity by osmosis. You know, kind of get become a Christian like you get the flu. Uh, and yet, uh, I find that the ministry in the South, and this is true of where I grew up, uh, is a little bit harder. Uh, because, in fact, they often... Uh, could tell me what the gospel is. Uh, They know uh, what the gospel is, but it's uh, remarkable to me that when we get down to it, uh, there are lots of people who can articulate the gospel, but in fact uh, don't know Jesus uh, from a hole in the wall, which is why it's so interesting Paul's transition away from Lydia to this demon-possessed girl. Now, at the end, when she was converted, she said... um, (coughs) <coughs> to, to Paul and his companions, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. One of the signs of her converted heart was that she opened up her house uh, to these men to come and stay with her. Uh, they had no place to lay their head. In fact, Paul often had to work wherever he was in order to have a little bit of money to make his way around. And so, but here, uh, Lydia opens up her home uh, to believers. Last week, we talked a little bit about the fact that the church has lost its spot in Western culture as the place where the community comes together, that this is, you know, we come together as a family, that that space has largely been taken up by places like Starbucks, right, which is more than just about coffee. Uh, I mean, when's the last time you actually went to Starbucks and saw someone drinking coffee? Just coffee, just sitting there drinking coffee. No, they're on their laptops, they're working, they're meeting people, uh, you know, things that actually the church uh, used to do. And uh, in, uh, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he actually says that if you're going to be an elder in the church, a presbyter, a priest, you must show hospitality. Uh, now, I know that we live in the South, but uh, hospitality has become a lost Uh, art, a lost virtue, a lost characteristic uh, of the Christian faith uh, in in our world as we live compartmentalized lives. But she has thrown open her doors, and we'll find later on, not just to Paul and his companions, uh, but to a number of other people. And so he transitions, and let me read this story again because it's pretty remarkable. So as they're going to the place of prayer, they're going back to this place that's sort of a makeshift synagogue. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaims to you the way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. Paul gets greatly annoyed, turns and says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Um, if you read the King James, it actually says that this woman is a Pythian. You know where that comes from? That's another thing. No one knows Greek mythology anymore. So, um, you know, Apollos, uh, Apollo came down and slayed uh, the great serpent beast, the python, in the temple at Delphi. And so to, uh, this, is, this was not uncommon in the Greco-Roman world is that there would be uh, sort of soothsaying. And at Delphi, do you know this? Why they, there were these priestesses, these uh, pithos, who would uh, say that they could tell your future. But do you know what they actually found on the ruins of the Temple of Delphi? A natural gas leak. 
And so they were actually huffing. Uh, and, then, um, and then in their sort of state of trance, they told you your lottery numbers. So uh, it was big business. It was big business. Um, and, and we're not talking about, I was, Lauren and I were listening to the radio the other day and Dionne War, Warwick came on in such a beautiful voice, but uh, I don't know what got into her, uh, wasn't the Lord, uh, but remember when she was doing Madame Cleo? Remember Madame Cleo that would come on and they'd spend all this money on airtime to get people to dial in? We're not talking about uh, a trick. We're not talking about somebody who, uh, who's there uh, to read your palm and to read the cards. Uh, we went to a party recently over Halloween that decided they were going to get a fortune teller. And a friend of ours who had had a couple drinks stumbled up to the table. And when he went to put his cup on the table, he dumped it all over the fortune teller. And she stood up in alarm and was gasping. And, uh, and he looked at her and said, well, if you were any kind of real fortune teller, you would have known that was going to happen. <laughs> so we're not talking about that. What we're talking about, what we're talking about is a is a young girl who is actually possessed by a spirit who is able to see in, into the future. And she has been uh, given uh, not this gift, although um, uh, her owners uh, saw her as a great moneymaker. And it's a crazy transition. So you go from a woman, Lydia, who materially speaking has everything. She has her independence, right? She owns a business, and now she's a Christian. She has a name, and now we go to an unnamed woman who was not in control of anything, even her own person. The complete opposite of Lydia. And she's possessed by this evil spirit, which Paul casts out in the name of Jesus. Now, this woman has been delivered uh, in some sense. We don't know if she becomes a Christian uh, because there's a difference between having a demon cast out and actually having the Lord Jesus come into your life to be saved, to be converted. Uh, and so uh, we don't know, but uh, I'm sure that if she was, that Lydia would be one of the first to welcome uh, this slave girl uh, into her home. Uh, but it's interesting that what, is the, what does the demon cry out? Right, these men know the way of salvation they're representatives of the Most High God. Even in the Greco-Roman world, people who would have heard this young girl say this uh, were very happy uh, to put uh, the God of Israel as the Most High God. And they would even articulate it that way. And so they would have known that, that these men uh, were, were preaching uh, the Jewish God of heaven and earth, uh, but, uh, but also uh, that they were preaching a word that was a means of salvation. But Paul gets annoyed. Why? Well, one, uh, it sends a confused message. All right, do you want, a herald or, do you want uh, your herald of the gospel to be demon-possessed? Probably not. And the last thing that Paul and his companions needed or wanted was to have their ministry associated uh, with this girl. And also, as the Bible tells us, Paul was just flat out annoyed. She'd been doing this for days, and he finally had had enough of it, and in the name of Jesus, cast her out. But even though she was actually preaching some truth, this is sort of going back to what I was saying, it is going back to what I was saying earlier, that there is a tremendous difference between knowing about something 
and actually knowing something. There's a tremendous difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing someone. You know, in the English language, we only have the verb to know, right? That we know something. Uh, French, they have two verbs. One is, I know about something, and the other is, I actually know uh, this person, this individual. And so what do we mean when we say we know uh, somebody? I mean, I could actually say, you know, I know uh, Barack Obama. He lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He's got a wife named Michelle. He's got two kids. Uh, he goes on really nice vacations. His golf game is terrible. Uh, he's a recovering smoker. Uh, he has a dog that I believe is a Portuguese water dog. Um, he's from Illinois. Well, he's a senator from Illinois, but he grew up in Hawaii. I mean, that's kind of, if I went around saying that about anybody else, what would you say? You know a little too much about them, right? You would almost say that I knew them. But do I know the President of the United States? No, I don't. I don't have any relationship with him. Uh, I know a whole lot about him, but I don't know him. And in the same way, uh, this demon, just like the devil, right? the devil knows Scripture better than any of us ever will. And even the devil believes that Jesus is Lord. But for us, uh, do we just know about Jesus in the same way this demon does? Or do we actually know uh, the Lord Jesus? Uh, you know, that is uh, one of the uh, things that I like about the Advent is on Sundays we still say the creed by saying, I believe, rather than we believe. Why? Because it's actually a declaration of faith. You're appropriating it for yourself. I believe. Andrew Pearson believes these things. This is what Jesus has done for me. These are the core tenets of my faith. And so this morning, uh, looking at the life of Lydia in this demon-possessed girl, uh, which, by the way, I heard a bishop preach on and said that what Paul did was sinful because it took away economic leverage from this young girl. Now, just in case something like that comes up, you know, and I, and I think I'd want to be delivered. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I want to be delivered, um, even if it is to economic gain. But, of course, here it wasn't to her gain. It was to her owners. Uh, but do we know about Jesus or do we actually know him? Do we have a personal relationship with him or is he at arm's length? I mean, that, that is the question that Paul is putting to us and that the Bible is constantly putting before us, the need to be converted, the need to be born again, the need to know the Lord Jesus and to be in relationship uh, with, with him. Questions, comments, concerns? Libby. Early, early on in your message today, I was reminded how I would have thought my, as my opportunity to go on my first ever mission trip with a medical team as a new widow, I, I just felt perfectly fine with the knowledge that I had from my church and my, my background. But they insisted that I learn a procedure to present the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and give someone an opportunity mm -hmm. as you've done today in a sense. And, and it, it changed my life because I, well, I was obedient to the leadership for one thing. And I'm not often that obedient to the leadership. <laughs> uh, you don't know me, but that's kind of part of my past. And uh, <laughs> I know about you. Well, I, I think, 
<laughs> now you do. And so it was, it was because of the um, training that I had and just declaring the truth and giving opportunity that, yeah. that g gave me opportunities that if I look at the picture, I've been on two since then, f three since then, mission trips, and uh, it brings back the memories of each person yeah. that heard the gospel for the first time. Yeah, and we've talked about this before in the sense that, you know, when we share the gospel with people, uh, we're, not, we're not reducing them to a spiritual statistic. We're not trying to say, okay, let's get you to become a Christian and then, you know, we're one and done, here's your fire insurance. No, we're actually, no, Jesus is interested in you uh, and you, not just kind of a one and done thing. But uh, the way that I often remember it, and if I'm ever presenting the gospel, is I, I think of it in, in terms of ABC. Um, and that is uh, coming to a place where you, um, uh, that you are able to admit that you're not in control of your own life, to acknowledge uh, that you are indeed a broken person. Uh, and, uh, but then to believe on Jesus Christ and uh, to put your trust and faith in Him. S simple as a prayer, Lord, save me. And then to commit your life to Him, to allow Him to come into your life and actually order uh, your life uh, whether we like it or not. Uh, but that is indeed the way that he, he goes about it. So it is helpful to kind of have in your mind an outline of, of a gospel presentation, absolutely. Uh, past, I guess, month or two, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I never knew the words to that song. I like the song, but I never really listened to the words and speaking about oratory skills. Uh, and then, I guess, two nights ago, I was listening to old uh, Bob Dylan song, who a lot of, you know, adults anyway, they just didn't want to hear that screeching voice. But the youth wanted, knew the words were very powerful it just struck to me that similarity a lot of times we like the, the sound of someone's voice but we really aren't paying attention to the words yeah that's uh yeah and, and you don't know the means by which god is going to break through in somebody's life um you know uh, there are sermons that are preached even here where someone will think well i didn't get anything out of that uh and then the person next to you is just totally undone and in tears because god has used that sermon uh, to speak to them. Um, so, I mean, it's a great encouragement to me to read the Old Testament and to see that, you know, the story of Balaam's ass. It's a great story uh, where uh, nobody would, uh, would preach, and so uh, God used Balaam's donkey uh, to preach, uh, and uh, that got people's attention. Um, and so that, that God can use any means uh, that He sees uh, necessary to bring us into a relationship with Him. Nobody has any questions about demon possession? That's normally the big no, one. I'm, I'm full of them. Um, <laughs> I, probably, no, no longer. Um, I left you, a, you will have a message on your desk when you get to your office Monday, tomorrow morning. Oh, great. If you don't go there today, that I'm taking you to lunch. And we, I, I know Eva now, so I've left a message with her. And my first question was going to be what you answered today. I wanted you to know your story. Oh, that's nice. Now, I took a parishioner. There's, there's a parishioner who's, who's no longer with us, God bless her. And um, she was kind of getting on in years. And I, um, I said, well, I'd like, she said, I'd like for you to go out to lunch with me. I said, I'd love to take you out to lunch. And I said, where would you like to go? And she said, well, I kind of like Ruth's Chris. And I thought, okay. <laughs> so I took her to Ruth's Chris. Three hours later and a bottle of champagne and a half later, <laughs> I was like, honey, I got to go to work. Uh, but, um, so I look forward to it. Uh, let me... Uh, just took a not not Ritz Chris. 
Yeah. Oh, now, now we're talking. We're getting spiritual. Um, but now let me say this about, about demon possession, because we live in a world that is obsessed with the occult, is really obsessed with the occult. But let me just say, demon possession is real. It's real. You know, our, our struggle is not against the powers of this world, but uh, the powers of this world, those unseen things, uh, principalities and the prince of darkness himself. Uh, but let me say this. If you're a Christian, the biblical witness is this. If you're a Christian and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, which means you're a Christian, uh, there's no room for anything else. So you're not possessed by a demon if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. It's, it's impossible, according to the Bible, for that, for that to happen. Now, you may think your spouse is possessed, uh, <laughs> but indeed that may not be the case. And that's actually a very difficult thing. I'll have people come to me and they'll say, I think I'm under attack spiritually. And it turns out that it could be one of three things. It could actually be a spiritual attack from Satan. It could be your own sinfulness causing problems in your life. Or, I could do a whole series on this, or it could actually be God. Right? Who was it that caused Jonah to get swallowed up? I mean, while he's sitting in the belly of the whale, what's he thinking? Praise the Lord? No, he's, he's thinking, you know, how did I get myself in this spot? Or... You know, uh, you know what, what demon is antagonizing me uh, to the point uh, he never thought that it was actually, uh, that was the means of jo uh, Jonah's salvation. If he hadn't gotten swallowed up by the great fish, what would have happened? Drowned, would have died. Because, you know, like, yeah, so, they, they I mean, sent that lying spirit to the prophets when yeah. Ahab was going to... That's right. So, fault, yeah. So, I mean, there is a sense in which absolutely you can be under spiritual attack, but you can't be possessed by... A, the spirit can't inhabit you in the way that, that, that this uh, spirit in, inhabited, this demon inhabited this little girl. Um, you know, if, if you've not read uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters... Uh, those are really good to get an idea of how the devil works. Because oftentimes the way that we think, you know, what the devil would love to happen in our world is for us to believe he doesn't exist, right? Because then he operates under complete freedom. The other thing that I'll say is that uh, those whom God is using in an incredible and a mighty way, um, normally unbeknownst to the individual themselves, are the most likely to be under attack. Yes. The question is, leave it to Lauren to answer that. Uh, can someone who has been baptized be possessed? Because, no, because we see, especially in the book of Acts, that baptism is never equated with salvation. It's always what? Believe and be baptized. And even in our tradition, uh, we have what? We have confirmation, right? There comes a point, and now it's, it's, like I've said before, it's turned a little bit into a Gentile bar mitzvah, but, you know, you get to sixth or seventh grade and it's time to be confirmed. Uh, but the idea is that they actually appropriate the Christian faith. They stand before the congregation and say, I'm a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. Right? There are plenty of people who, who have been baptized, uh, circumcised of the flesh, but not circumcised of the heart. Right? So they are grafted into, into the covenant community of God. Right? They're part of the church. Uh, but the church is a total mixed bag, as we well know, uh, that we have people in the church uh, who are just kind of all over the place. But God will sort that out with the wheat and the tares uh, one day, and thank God it's Him and not me.
Satan responsible for all evil? I would say that ultimately, Satan and sin are responsible for all evil. Because, you know, you can't be like Flip Wilson and say, well, the devil made me do it. Uh, so it's not, it's not, I mean, there is a culpability. There's a responsibility on our own part. But I have a feeling you have a follow-up. Why does God put up with Satan? Why didn't he just get rid of him? Yeah, that's, uh, well, we know that he will. Um, and, you know, someone asked, some third grader asked this morning, well, if God knew that we were going to sin and fall, why did he put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden? And that's when I faked a stroke. And, uh, and, and, and fell over. Right. So, I mean, yeah, there, there, are, there are things in the Bible and there are things in our own lives where we say, why don't you just take care of this? Why don't you just... But we know that God in His omniscience uh, can see to the very end of time. We've read the end of the book. We know who wins, that Satan will ultimately be defeated. Uh, but He also sees, if you think about it from the other side, He also sees you and me. He sees our birth. He sees our lives. And so to bring us into fellowship with Him, you know, I see that God allows the world to continue to turn so that more people can come into relationship with Him. Uh, so not just simply the, the negative uh, of, of the effects of sin and, and the devil um, in, in our world. And in fact, we know, looking at the Bible, that it is actually going to get worse. Uh, it's going to get worse. I don't, I don't understand people who think that as time marches on, people get better and better and better. Um, in fact, I think the opposite has happened. Um, it, if anything, we've gotten more creative in the ways that our corruption demonstrates itself in our world. Time's up, David said. He's in charge. All right. You didn't say anything about how long the sermon was today. No, it was perfect. Okay. <laughs> Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.